Our Father, if we were honest, this week has been full of failures, uh, our own as well as our having to endure the failures of others. And so, Lord, now as we come to your word, we, we pray that you would help us, help us to listen to you, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us, Lord, we pray, by your grace, through Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Well, I was blessed to grow up with two sisters, one older and one younger. I was the only boy in our house, and uh, this past Wednesday uh, was my older sister's birthday, so I talked to her and wrote her uh, a few messages this past week, and of course, that kind of led me to reflect on being her younger brother. I was reminded of just what a blessing it is to have an older sister, an older sibling. For if you pay attention as you're growing up, you can really learn a few helpful things, primarily from their mistakes. So one of the lessons that was particularly helpful for me happened not long uh, after my sister started dating the boy who would eventually become her husband while she was in high school. Uh, One of the nights they were out together, she broke curfew. I can't remember how late she was, but it was significant, so significant, that I was able to conveniently overhear the lecture that my parents gave her after she finally made it home. Um, I noticed now, or then, how upset my parents were about this. So I learned. Breaking curfew is kind of a serious thing with my parents. So serious that my sister was grounded by my parents for, I think, the only time in her life. I also overheard uh, something very helpful. I heard my mother say more than once to my sister, you know, if you would have just called, we would not have been so worried. So I listened closely to my mom's word and uh, used that extensively. Whenever I knew that I was going to be late, I would call and let my mother know where I was Let her know that I'll probably be a little bit late, and that saved me from many lectures and many punishments from my parents during my high school years. So it's wise to pay attention and to learn from the mistakes of others. Younger siblings, it's wise. And here this morning, in our passage, we find Luke recording for us a few different failures of the disciples, failures that were written out for his readers for an important reason. These are failures that we are to observe and learn lessons from. And I believe the main lesson that these failures are showing us is just how great our need is to listen to Jesus. If you listened to last week's sermon, then you might be thinking that you have heard that application before. Indeed, you have. For in the preceding passage here in Luke 9 on the revealing of the spectacular glory of the Son of God on the mountain, the transfiguration, we saw that the disciples heard a voice from heaven say in in verse 35, this is my Son, this is my chosen one, listen to him. And that command is then followed in Luke's gospel by these examples of the disciples' failures, showing that they still have a lot to learn. They had better listen to Jesus. And I don't think it would, be, it would take much 
of, of an investigation to, 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 to uh, determine that each of us probably still has a lot to learn as well. You know, no matter how far along you are in your discipleship journey, you still have much to learn. So as we look at these uh, examples here of, of the, discipleship's fa- uh, the disciples' failures, our main theme is, in light of these failures, in light of these failures of those who are closest to Jesus, we should realize our great need to listen to him, to listen to Jesus. The first of these failures that we see is a failure to trust and seek understanding. A failure to trust and seek understanding in verses 37 through 45. Jesus and the disciples don't stay on the mountain. Uh, Jesus doesn't remain in the glory and in the joy of the presence of God the Father. Instead, he comes down. He comes down into the sorrow and pain of the world. He comes down and walks among the desperate and the hurting. And we see here the generation that he came down to minister to is a faithless and twisted generation. That's how Jesus describes it. And so a man from the crowd cries out to Jesus for help. It is his son, his only son, his only child, and he is suffering greatly under the control of a demon. And the demon is doing what demons do, what their ruler Satan does. He is seeking to steal and kill and destroy this young boy and bring great sorrow and devastation to the family. And we see that Jesus cares for this boy and his father. He has mercy on them. So that's teaching us something, friends. When we cry out to Jesus on behalf of our hurting children, he will have mercy on us. He will come and help us. Whether we cry out to him because of a physical physical condition that our children are afflicted with, or a spiritual problem if our children are under the influence of the evil one, when we cry out to the Lord Jesus on their behalf, we know that Jesus has mercy on those who look to him. He will come and minister to us and to them. He genuinely cares. You may have been a little shocked when you first heard what Jesus said in verse 41. Let's take a look at that. Verse 41 He says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He sounds a little harsh, doesn't he? I mean, he's he's saying something that we we would think is is not really merciful, is not, not really gracious. Yet the apostles, whom Jesus was referring to here as the members of this faithless and twisted generation, they instead made sure that this quote was included in the gospel record. I mean, think about it. Who were the eyewitnesses who could have reported and verified that Jesus said what he said here? Well, it's the apostles. The the ones that Jesus is, is talking about here. And they made sure to include it. So that helps to give me confidence that the scriptures must be true and historically accurate. Why would they put that in there? Because they're trying to be accurate to what he actually said. So we know that Jesus was referring to the disciples because Luke tells us he was responding to the Father's comment in verse 41. The, father, the, the comment of your disciples, uh, 
could not cast it out. So I don't think he was talking about the father here because the father displayed his faith by crying out to Jesus for help. And the Lord responds to the father's faith by immediately casting out the demon and healing the boy. And it says, he mercifully gave the boy back to his father. Let's read that again. Bring your son here, Jesus said in verse 41. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, why couldn't the disciples help this man and deliver his son out of harm? Well, back in, 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 in Luke 9, verse 1, if you want to just turn back there quickly, Luke 9, verse 1, we read that Jesus had given the apostles power and authority over demons when he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. We assume that they had success in that ministry and drove out demons. But a few weeks later, in this passage, they could not, it says. They were unable. So what happened? Well, this story is also found in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark as well, and all the Gospel writers agree the reason why the disciples were unsuccessful in driving out this demon was because they were simply seeking to do it in the authority that they may have thought that they had without faith in Christ's power and authority. That's why Jesus calls them faithless. That is the definition of someone without faith in Christ. They're trusting in their own strength, trusting in their their own abilities and their own righteousness rather than admitting they have none, they have no, no power, they have no righteousness, they have no ability to do this, and then looking to Jesus Christ instead. Trusting in his strength, trusting in his authority, trusting in, in his righteousness. Nothing is more twisted than thinking we do not need Jesus and that we're just fine on our own without him. That's faithless. That's twisted. We find out later that these apostles were, were thinking of themselves as being pretty great, you know, greater than others especially, just because they were closely associated with Jesus and had experienced much in in following him. So when this man brought his suffering son to them, we can imagine them believing that they could handle this themselves. They they thought they had enough power within themselves rather than admitting their weakness, admitting that they had no spiritual power and instead were completely dependent upon the authority of Jesus the Christ, the chosen one. If they would have prayed in the name of Jesus for this demon to be cast out or if they would have cast it out by Christ's name and his authority rather than their own. It seems that Jesus is implying the boy would have been saved. But the disciples have quickly fallen back into the way of the world, looking to themselves rather than trusting in Jesus. So friends, you know that we cannot look down on these disciples here, for we have far too many examples in our own lives of when we have believed that we had enough in and of ourselves And then we attacked our day or we attacked a certain challenge or temptation in our strength alone without depending upon Jesus through prayer, without depending upon him through obedience to his word and it resulted in our sinning and maybe even hurting others. 
You see, we show our failure to trust Christ when we neglect to pray and when we, fall, when we fail to obey what his word says. Famous memory verse from Proverbs 3, you probably know what it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Well, well do you know what that means primarily? It means obey the Lord, obey what he says. It means do what the Lord says. That is how we demonstrate that we are trusting in the Lord with all our heart. It means when we hear the Lord say, do good to those who hate you, well, we do good to them. And when we hear the Lord say, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building others up, well, then we are to make sure that we avoid talking in a way that tears others down and instead speak in such a way that builds others up, that gives grace to them. And when, when we fail to do that, we fail in trusting Christ. The next failure of the disciples comes immediately after this in verse, 40, in, uh, verse 43 here tells us, but, but while they were all marveling at everything doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, but they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So look closely there at verse 44. I believe this reveals the theme of this section of Scripture and recalls for us what God the Father had just declared to the three disciples on the mountain, listen to him. There it is. Let these words sink into your ears. On the mountain, God the Father had said, listen to him. And here Jesus tells the disciples, what I am about to say is of the greatest significance of anything I will say. You need to know and consider these words. Listen very carefully. And he says, the Son of Man that is, the Christ, he himself, the Son of Man, is to be delivered into the hands of men. Which, of course, harkens us back to what the Lord said in verse 22. If you want to turn back to verse 22 of, of Luke 9, there we see Jesus revealing a similar saying to the disciples right after the disciples had confessed that they know he is the Christ. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is important. He has said it once, he's saying it again. Jesus is, is describing here his mission, and it is not what his disciples thought it was. And Luke tells us the disciples failed to understand what he said here, that it was a, a mystery to them. It says it was actually concealed from them. Now we might think that Luke is trying to provide us with an excuse for the disciples as to why they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. It was because it was concealed from them. It was kept from them. They needed eyes to see it, but God had not yet opened their eyes to see it. Later in the Gospel of Luke, after the resurrection, Luke will tell us in Luke 24 that God will open their minds to understand the Scriptures. So it will come. And so here we might think that, well, this is an excuse. This is the reason. You know, this is kind of getting the disciples off the hook. But Luke then adds this statement at the end of verse 45. Look at that. He says, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They're afraid to ask him. They didn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask any questions. 
So this implies, of course, that they could have asked him. They could have asked him a question about this, but, but, but they didn't. They didn't understand. They could have asked Jesus about this to seek understanding, but they didn't. Instead, they just consigned themselves to not understanding, which often leads to misunderstanding. So why don't we ask questions? Why don't we ask questions? Why don't we seek understanding when we don't understand? What keeps us from asking questions? Well, what keeps us from stopping and asking for directions when we're lost? What keeps us from asking for help from a grocery store employee when we can't find what we're looking for in the store? Students, what keeps us from raising our hands in math class to ask the teacher for help when we don't understand the concept? Isn't it our pride? Isn't it our sinful pride that keeps us from asking questions? We think we should know where we are going, and we definitely don't want anyone else to know that we don't know where we are going, so we don't ask for help because if we did, we would reveal that we really don't know what we think we should know. And so when we are considering biblical truths, we, we, we may think we, we should know this, we should understand it, and if we don't, well, that must mean that there's something wrong with us, and so we don't want anyone to know there's something wrong with us, and so we don't ask questions because we don't want to reveal our deficiencies to others. We are too proud to humble ourselves, and that's why we don't ask for help to understand. It is either that, or we just don't care to know. The disciples are revealing their need to listen more closely to Jesus. And when we don't know or understand something from biblical teaching, we reveal that we need to listen to Jesus more closely and probably humble ourselves to ask some questions. Secondly, we see a failure to pursue true greatness. This is in verses 43 through 40, or 46 through 48. So let's look at those verses. 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The disciples here were doing out loud what most of us do in the privacy of our own minds. Quite often that is they were sizing each other up as to who is the greatest. They were comparing themselves to each other. We don't know quite what they were using as arguments for who was greater than the others. Maybe how many of Jesus' miracles they had witnessed. Maybe how many people they were able to heal. Um, or um, comparing the number of demons that they were able to cast out, uh, at least that is before this, this last failure with the boy and his father. But Jesus puts an end to this silly arguing by putting his hands on a little child. And he put the child by his side, look at verse 48 again, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So remember, Jesus had just described the disciples as being like the world, as a faithless and twisted generation. We, we talked about what it means to be faithless, but here we're given an example of what it means to be twisted. That is, to be backwards. The disciples believe that pursuing greatness means you need to compare yourself with others 
in your accomplishments or your strength or your position of leadership. That's what it means to be great. But Jesus says, actually, what it really means to be great is to, humble, is to be humble enough and merciful enough that you would pay special attention to someone whom the greater culture rejects as having no or very little importance. The disciples were seeking status for themselves here, and Jesus says, actually, the way to seek greatness is not to seek status for yourselves in this wicked and twisted world, but rather to identify yourselves with those who have no status at all and welcome them into the kingdom of God. Children in the first century in a place like Judea had very little importance. They were ignored by the men. They were to be kept out of sight, and definitely they were not to be heard. They were not to get in the way of the important things that the adults were doing. And Jesus, over and over again in his ministry, reveals how twisted that perspective is. Instead, Jesus says, greatness is identifying with those of little status, like children, like the sick, or the disabled, or the demon-possessed. I was blessed to grow up within a church a lot like this one, in a small rural town in Iowa. Uh, We did have between 200 and 230 people in the church, so there were plenty of adults for me to look up to within the congregation, but not all of them had time for me. I was a bit of an ornery kid, but there were several adults who would be sure to talk to me, to ask me questions, some who would even get down on one knee and give me a piece of candy, rub my head to show that they loved me, that I was important to them. And you know, after I came to faith in Christ in my later high school years, I really began to listen, finally, to the adults in the church. And I bet you can guess who those adults were that I listened to the most. The adults that I respected and honored the most. They were the adults who had the greatest impact on my discipleship as a young adult and were the same ones who bent down and listened to and welcomed me when I was a child. It was those who gave their time to lead the junior high youth group, who opened up their homes to us, loud and obnoxious kids. It was the ones who loved us. That was who I listened to. That was who I looked up to. That was who I wanted to be like. So brother and sister, that greatness, according to the Lord Jesus, is available to you as well. You can be that person. You can do that for the children in this church and for the children in your life. Listen to Jesus. Humble yourself by being willing to identify with those of low status in our culture. The last failure we're told about here was a failure to encourage faithful cooperation. Failure to encourage faithful cooperation, verses 49 and 50. So here again, the disciples genuinely believed that they were in the right here. As John confidently reports to Jesus there in verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to them, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The disciples did not stop the man uh, because he was not honoring Jesus. 
No, no, he was honoring Jesus, for he was actually casting out demons in your name, John, John says. In other words, he was doing exactly what the disciples had failed to do in the encounter with the demon-possessed boy, which is kind of ironic. So the issue here isn't about orthodoxy. It's about association. The man wasn't leading people away from Jesus with false teaching. He was bringing attention to the power and authority of Jesus by doing this in his name. The reason the apostles stopped him was because, as they said, he does not follow with us. He's not one of us. He wasn't a part of their group. He didn't associate with them. And Jesus, again, rebukes the disciples and encourages them to cooperate with those who are faithful. This man was showing his faithfulness for he was depending upon the power and authority of Jesus and not his own or anything else for that matter. And God was blessing him for it. He wasn't against them, he was for them. And the Lord was preparing them for the time when they were going to need more friends and more partners in ministry. Now we can fail in this very way as well, can't we? We can be upset when another church seems to be very successful with their ministry. They are attracting the kind of people that we are hoping to attract. Or, or they seem to do baptisms every month when we are maybe doing once a year. You know, we can begin to think of them not as partners but as competitors. And Jesus is making it clear to us here, brothers and sisters, as long as they are faithful to him and his word, well, we should encourage their success and not put it down. We should seek to cooperate with them and not work against them. We should never fail to associate ourselves with other faithful believers. Once again, the disciples and we ourselves have been shown that with this failure, that we need to listen to Jesus more. We need to seek to understand his word and his way. So friends, just like I learned from the failure of my older sister in regards to curfew, we also need to learn from the disciples' failures here. We have our own failures. Maybe you are dealing with the consequences of, of a failure even today. Maybe it's been on your heart. It's caused you anxiety. And you have maybe beat yourself up because of it. You know, you, you should have known better. You, you wished you would have done things differently. Well, we are shown here that, that even those who were closest to Jesus failed. Even those who were living with him, hearing him teach every day, seeing him heal and cast out demons with their own eyes, and yet even they failed. Even they had a lot to learn, so don't despair. They failed, so we should expect to fail as well. But the clear guidance here is that our failures reveal our great need to listen to Jesus. Don't let your sins and your failure drive you away from Jesus and his word, but rather have them lead you to him. Rather uh, than having them you know, create something that, that makes you say to yourself, well, I, I, I can't follow this way anymore. I'm, I'm a failure. I, I've shown that, I, that I'm not really following Jesus. Don't allow the enemy to put those lies in your heart. Rather, let your failures lead you to Jesus. Repent of those failures. 
confess them and rest in the promise of grace and forgiveness from Jesus. Your failures show how much you need him, how much we need to listen to his word and pray for faith, pray for understanding, pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see more of him, to see more of his glory. And like the, the, the crowds did here, be astonished and marvel at everything Jesus does. I'd ask the deacons now to come forward as we move towards the communion table. And again, what we're about to do is something the Lord has given us to remind us of our need for him. You cannot be accepted by God in your own righteousness, in your own power, in your own privilege or family name or because you come to church every Sunday. That's, that's not how God or why God accepts you. The only way God will accept us is if we have faith in the Lord's work on our behalf. We have faith in Jesus' righteousness. In Jesus' work, that his blood covers our sins, the blood that he shed on the cross. That his, his death has been accepted by God as, as, a, as a right sacrifice for our sins, to pay for our sins. God accepts us because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And so we, we, have, we have bread and the cup pointing us to that reality that Jesus had to die for us to have our sins forgiven. Jesus had to die for us to be acceptable in God's sight. He had to live a sinless life and then be handed over by God into the hands of, of men, sinners, nailed to a cross. Endure the wrath of God there on our behalf for our sins. Die and then be raised from the dead. That's what this represents for us. If you have faith in that work of Christ, if you have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then this table is for you. So we invite you to come, partake of it. Praise God for the grace that is ours through Christ. But if you know yourself not, not to be there, in other words, you're really not looking to Christ. You, you don't quite understand the gospel. Well, we, we, just, we just ask you to, to let the trays pass you by, to not, not partake until you come to know that Jesus really is your salvation, that Jesus really is the one who saved you from your sins and from the judgment of God for your sins. I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which gives us the instructions for the Lord's table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, that really focuses our attention on the death of Christ. We have faith in the death death of Christ for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be welcomed into God's presence for all eternity. That is our hope, and so the, the, the table shows us our hope. And so we partake, and we enjoy this grace that God's made available for us. If that's not you, however, I want you to hear the next words. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why we just ask if you're not walking with Christ in faith, you're not putting your hope in in him, just let let the cup pass you by. But we encourage you, we plead with you, this is your salvation. Christ is your way to heaven. Come to him. Come to him. He is strong and he is kind. You can come to him and be forgiven and have new life in him. Ask the deacons to stand here as we'll pass out. the. Uh, again, they'll, they'll, they'll carry the trays down the row. They'll hold it out for you at the end of the row to, to take the cup, how many, however many cups you need for, for your family uh, or household, and then wait until all have been served and we'll partake of the bread and the cup together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and what the Lord's table represents for us in that, that Christ's body was broken, that his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. The punishment has already been paid, and Christ Jesus is our Savior. Let us glorify him together in the taking of the bread and the cup. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And after they had eaten, our Lord then took the cup. He said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you. What a sacrifice that our Lord Jesus made for us. We all here together are undeserving of such love and such grace. We all together are sinners deserving your condemnation. And yet, he was wounded for our transgressions. He suffered in our place. And today we celebrate that we have a shepherd, a good shepherd, who has cared for his sheep and has protected us. And now we can take refuge in him and have life forever in his name. We ask, us, we ask you to bless us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to close our service with a thank you, Lord. I can't get it to pull up on the screen, but I think most of you know the words of the song. It's just thanking the Lord for what he has done for us. Let's stand together as we close our service with thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free and now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only god our savior through jesus christ our lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen